Well, good morning. If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapters 29 and 30 today. If you don't have a Bible but you'd like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks there in front of you if you want to grab one of them. And if you don't know where to find things in the Bible, that's okay. We have people uh, with us each week who are unfamiliar with the Bible. And uh, Genesis is the very first book. And so if you open up to the very first book in the Bible, make your way forward. You should find Genesis chapter 29 pretty quickly. It's interesting that we would have a, uh, a baby dedication today that, we would, be, that would, we would already be thinking about families because families are what we want to uh, take some time this morning to think about. Actually, one particular family that we would like to spend some time thinking about. I'll remind you that God had promised Abraham descendants that were as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the shore. So God has made a promise to Abraham that that he is going to have countless descendants. But Abraham goes most of his life without even having one. And then when his son Isaac is born, he and his wife Rebekah only have two children, Jacob and Esau, the twin brothers. But all this is finally going to begin to change with Jacob's family. Because today we want to talk a little bit about, first of all, about how Jacob's family came together. And then we want to talk about what in the world that family has to do with us, because it does have something very much to do with us. If you were with us last week, then you remember that when we last saw Jacob, he was running for his life. And Jacob is running for his life because he has just swindled his older brother out of his father's blessing, and he has received word through his mother that his older brother Esau intends to kill him as soon as his father dies. So he makes preparations to leave very quickly, and he's got a a good pretext for leaving and escaping, one that will also have his father's additional blessing, because he is going to return to Haran, the land which his family members have come from, to get a wife. And so it's kind of a kill two birds with one stone kind of thing. Uh, Save your life and get a wife in Haran. Now, what happened last week, we saw as he's making his way there, that Jacob has a supernatural encounter with God. He's pulled over for the night at a little rest area on the way. He's kind of propped himself up on a stone for his pillow, and he has had an experience like he has never had before of the presence of God breaking into his reality. And he's able to move forward from that with the assurance that the God of his his grandfather Abraham and the God of his father Isaac is going to be his God. And he swears his allegiance to that God. And he moves forward with the assurance that no matter what happens to him, God is with him. So, he arrives in Haran. And when he arrives there, he stops at a well that's there in Haran, 
and he's making conversation with some shepherds when he meets the woman of his dreams, his second wife. Wait for that a little bit. She also happens to be his cousin. So there's that. Remember, family clan, this time it wasn't unusual for people to marry within the family clan. So while that's something that wouldn't happen in our culture, uh, that was a pretty common occurrence there. But he meets this woman and she takes Jacob to uh, her father, Laban. And Laban is an important character that's going to move this story forward because Laban is Jacob's uncle. It's his mother's brother. So his mother, Rebecca, it's her brother. And he is going there to meet Laban. And Laban is overjoyed to have someone from the family come back and visit them. Jacob is staying with them for about a month. And Laban comes to him finally and says, if you're going to be here, then we need to to formalize the living arrangements that we've got. And so, if you're there in Genesis chapter 29, look with me at verse 15. In Genesis chapter 29, beginning in verse 15, the Word of God says this, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. That's the one he met at the well. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So as they're formalizing their living arrangements, what's this going to look like? Laban asks, what do you want out of this? And Jacob responds, I want Rachel. Jacob has had his eye on her. And Rachel is the pretty one. The Bible tells us that Leah has eyes that are weak, and you just think, well, you know, grab a pair of glasses and you'll be good. Uh, But that's being contrasted with, uh, with Rachel, who is, the Bible says, is beautiful in form and appearance. So the Hebrew is a little unclear. We're not sure exactly what is trying to be communicated, but there is, is something about her that is less beautiful than her sister. And Jacob has apparently made this, this run to, to Haran quickly so that he's here without daddy's money. Remember, the Bible has told us that Abraham has become fabulously wealthy, Isaac has become fabulously wealthy, but Jacob has had to make a run for it, and it appears that Jacob has had to make a run for it without all the stuff. He's a trust fund baby, but he doesn't have access to any of that stuff. He's got no dowry to give. And so what's the dowry going to be? Seven years. Seven years of labor for his uncle Laban. And there's a little bit of a a romance element 
here, uh, the Bible tells us that, he, that Jacob is just so taken with Rachel that he serves seven years for her. Think about where were you seven years ago? What were you doing seven years ago? I do not have the faintest idea. That's how long seven years ago is. And he serves for her seven years, and the Bible tells us that seven years seemed like but a few days because of the love he had for her. But Jacob, the heel-grabbing deceiver, does not know that he has finally met his match. Up until this point, Jacob has used deception and manipulation and trickery to get what he wants. And he's been able to move the people around him like pieces of a puzzle. But what he doesn't know is that his uncle Laban is about to play him and play him hard. So, this is one of the weirder moments in the Bible. If you're not familiar with it, buckle up. Genesis chapter 29, look at verse 21. Seven years have fast-forwarded. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. Okay, the Bible, make the Bible come alive to yourself. Sometimes we just read the Bible uh, uh, in, in ways that, that make it boring when it doesn't have to be. So, you know, put yourself, in that, put yourself in that place, put yourself in that time. Imagine the festivities that are going on. You know, when we have weddings, most of the time they're really happy, happy moments. There's, there's, there's eating and drinking and dancing and, and all kinds of celebration, and that's what they're doing. Put yourself in there. So they're, they're, they're gathered for the feast, verse 23, but in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, in one of the greatest understatements in the entire Bible, behold, it was Leah. <laughs> and Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. This woman must have been gorgeous. Because Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So he served seven years, gets Leah, waits a week, and he gets the other wife on credit, basically is how this works. And he's willing to serve uh, another seven years, another dowry for her. This is just a crazy story. Uh, he rolls over in the morning, locks eyes, and it's the girl with the eyes. 
that he's locking eyes with. And I, I don't know how this all works. Okay, I don't know whether it's some combination of veils and darkness and maybe somebody's had too much to drink at the wedding celebration, okay? If you try to solve all that, there's lots of commentaries that you can read to say, how, can, how in the world can you accidentally marry the wrong person? It sounds like the plot to a Christmas Hallmark movie, doesn't it? She married the wrong guy, and then, you know, whatever. So I don't know exactly how all of this works, but bottom line is, he marries the wrong woman, And as you can understand, he is outraged at Laban, and Laban kind of steps back from the whole thing and is like, hey, I don't know what, maybe you didn't understand your customs are different than the customs here in our land, but our custom is to marry the older daughter first, you know, in the fine print and trick you into doing it, but that's that's what he says. So Jacob makes the deal, he works another seven years. And Laban gets 14 years of labor out of Jacob, who has finally met his match. Okay, so we talk all the time about you know, laying the foundation for a good marriage. And this ain't it. This is not the foundation for a strong marriage, marrying two women and really disliking one of them a lot. But that's where we're at. This is how this family gets started. And this is going to, as you can imagine, play out in this ongoing rivalry between these two sister wives. And how this rivalry is going to to be the, the arena in which this rivalry is going to be played out, is going to be who can have more children. That's the game that we're going to play in this rivalry. Now, the Bible tells us that Rachel suffers from infertility issues like her grandmother had before her and like her mother had had before her. So she's, she's suffering from these infertility issues. She's not able to have children. But the Bible tells us in verse 31 that, that the Lord could see Leah. And so the Lord enables Leah to be able to bear children. And I just want to highlight that theme for you again, because as we've been working with our way through Genesis, we see the Lord taking care of the people who are discarded. Over and over again, they do not escape the Lord's notice. And Leah is no exception to this. And Leah is able to, in succession, have four children, four boys named Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And we're not going to take the time to explore the meanings of all these names. I would encourage you to read through this scripture passage on your own if you haven't already. But the Bible makes a point and each one to describe the person's name and what it means. So Reuben, whenever you see that, that little word Ben in a name, that means son of someone. So in Hebrew names, Ben means son, so there's lots of them. But Reuben means see, seen, or see a son. And what the Bible tells us is that, that she names her son Reuben 
thinking that perhaps now that I have given Jacob a son, he'll care about me. Now that's pretty heartbreaking, isn't it? And all four of her boys have names that are a reflection of her hope for what their relationship can be. Well, Rachel is, as you can imagine, envious of Leah and the children that she's having, and so she makes a decision that her grandmother had made many years before. She makes the decision to have children through a surrogate. Remember, we're living in a, t- a time period when there, if you are, are dealing with infertility issues, there are no other options than having a child through a surrogate. Now, regardless of whether that practice was wise or not, it was a, a, a widely done practice in many cultures of that day. And so she gives her servant Bilhah, and through Bilhah, she has Dan and Naphtali. Leah sees that Rachel is having children through a surrogate, and Leah says, well, that seems like a good idea. Uh, Jacob could have children through a surrogate for me, and so she gives Zilpah as a surrogate to her, to him, and has Gad and Asher. So if you're keeping track, we're up to eight children now. And if you didn't think we were reality show up to this point, we are going to go full reality show now. In verse 14, the Bible tells us that Leah's son, Reuben, finds some mandrakes in a field. And mandrakes, if you're Harry Potter people, uh, mandrakes don't scream in real life. If you're not a Harry Potter person, you're like, what in the world is that? Uh, so just go invest, you know, 15 or 20 hours this afternoon to catch up on all that. But mandrakes are real things, not like they are in Harry Potter. <laughs> but mandrakes are real things. It's this root that you can pull up out of the ground, and ancient peoples saw mandrakes as having magical properties. And not only did they see them as having magical properties, but mandrakes were seen as aphrodisiacs. They were, they were seen as, as something that would help people fall in love or, or help with fertility issues. So sometimes we, we read the Bible and we just wonder, like, why, why are some of these details included? But that's why. Rachel very likely sees the discovery of these mandrakes as a means of solving her fertility issues. And she goes to Leah and asks if she can have some of the mandrakes. And they get along great, right? No. And Leah basically says, no way. These, my son found the mandrakes. They're my mandrakes. They're my magical mandrakes, and you can't have any of them. And Rachel says, tell you what. This is, this, I told you it's getting reality show here. People think the Bible is supposed to be rated G. Uh, it is not in any way rated G, uh, but we'll keep it PG today. Uh, she says, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll let Jacob sleep with you if you'll give me some of the mandrakes. And Leah says, that sounds like a fair trade to me. And so they come to that agreement, and Leah ends up having two more sons and a daughter, 
Issachar, Zebulun, and Dinah. You cannot make this stuff up. Okay, so we're up to 11. Finally, finally, the Bible tells us that the Lord remembered Rachel. And Rachel is able to have a son, finally, at long last. And she names that son, what? Joseph. And Joseph is going to occupy, in just a few chapters, like chapters 37 to the end of the book, everything is going to center on Rachel's son, Joseph. So finally, we have one large family. Four different baby mamas. All the drama that goes along with it. Okay, you know kids, you, if you go to one of your parents and ask if you can play video games longer, and you go to your dad and ask him, and he says, ask your mom, and you have to go back and forth. Imagine what it was like in this family, going to Jacob and say, can I play video games? Ask your moms, and now it's a four-person panel to figure out if we can do this or not. But this is what we're talking about. And as you can see and imagine, and as, as we'll see as we move forward in this, this is not one big happy family. This is not the Brady Bunch. We're going to see that this is a dysfunctional family if ever there was one. I mean, this family, this family never had a chance to avoid dysfunction based on the way that they've gotten their start based on the way all of these children are born, as it is a rivalry between competing interests. And we might ask ourselves, oh, wait a minute, God's, God's going to do something big with this family? Out of all the families that God could have chosen to do something big with, He's going to use this dysfunctional family And so I refer you to a question posed to Abraham several chapters ago. It's this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? God is constantly working in this world and through His people in ways that make us step back and say, the only way that could have happened is if God did it. Because the circumstances on their own would never produce those kinds of outcomes. He is the God of the impossible. And He is going to use this family, which is the product of sibling rivalry, to produce the twelve tribes that make up the nation of Israel. These twelve tribes are going to, to get a a a reasonably strong start. After 400-some-odd years of slavery in Egypt, they're going to be released, and they're going to be be able to make their way into the Promised Land. And these 12 tribes band together as the nation of Israel. We'll see next week, uh, yes, next week, that Jacob's name gets changed to Israel, but we'll talk about it then. They become the nation of Israel, and they march into the Promised Land. They take it. And the end of the book of Joshua is all about how the land is divvied up by these 12 tribes who are going to agree to live as a nation peaceably as God's people. 
And eventually we see out of that a monarchy grow. And we see King David rise to power. And then we see his son Solomon. And Solomon at first picks up where David left off. But then everything starts to devolve with these 12 tribes. After Solomon's, after Solomon's reign ends, the tribes have a split. The southern kingdom has two tribes, and the northern kingdom is composed of ten tribes. And they're not just, they don't just have an, an, an amicable, amicable departure between them. They want to kill each other. They're at war. They're making alliances with pagan nations to fight each other. And then we see the northern kingdom fall to the, to the uh, nation of Assyria. And all these people are deported and taken out of their land and they're dispersed. And then a few, few hundred years later, we see the southern kingdom fall to the Babylonian Empire. And these two tribes are, are deported and they're dispersed. And basically, the land is just a shell of its former self. And by the time some of these people are allowed to trickle back, they rebuild the temple and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Even when it's done and they're happy that God has brought them back, they look and see how far they have fallen. This once grand nation of Israel made up these, of these proud 12 tribes has dwindled to almost nothing. But here's the thing. God is just not done with that family. And here's a truth that I want you to see and meditate on with me this morning. It's this. Jacob's family forms the foundation for God's future family. Jacob's family forms the foundation for God's future family, which, as a spoiler alert, happens to be you. Now, how do we get there? Well, remember that God has promised a family to Abraham, as I said at the beginning, with descendants as numerous as the sand on the shore, and that promise has been passed down from generation to to generation. And God intends to keep that promise, even though at the close of the Old Testament, the 12 tribes are, are nothing what they had once been. But here's the thing in the Old Testament, the Bible sometimes refers to the nation of Israel that's made up of 12 tribes, it refers to the nation as God's son. He speaks of the nation of Israel as his son. Then, in the New Testament, that language is applied to Christ. So just as Israel is God's son, so Christ is a true son of Israel. In Hosea chapter 11, referring to the people being called out of Egypt, God says, out of Egypt I've called my Son, referring to the nation. And then that language is applied to Christ, telling us that Christ is a true son 
of Israel. Okay? That's the first thing you need to note. The second thing you need to note as we think through this is we need to ask ourselves the question, what is one of the first things Jesus does in his earthly ministry? Well, the way we often answer that question, we think, well, what was his first miracle? Does he turn water into wine or does he, does he heal people? Yes, he does those things miraculously, but, but what is one of the very first things that he does? Well, it's this. He gathers some disciples together. That's what the Gospels tell us. The opening part of his mission to do is to gather together this group of disciples. And do you remember how many he gathers? Twelve. Do you think that Jesus does that by accident? He could have gathered seven. He could have gathered 50. He had an inner circle of three, we know. But Jesus specifically and intentionally gathers 12 disciples. You see, what Jesus is intentionally doing at the very beginning of his earthly ministry is he is demonstrating his commitment to rebuild the family. That's what he's doing. This, these 12 disciples represent a, what you might call a reconstituted, or a, if you're a computer person, rebooted Israel. In fact, Jesus makes this promise to his disciples in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's, he's restarting the family. He's breathing new life into this family. He's remaking it. And we're not going to have time to get there today because I talked too long in the baby dedication, but when you go to the end of Revelation, to, the, to chapter 21, John sees this this revelation of this city coming down from heaven, the new Jerusalem, the city of God. And this city of God that comes down has 12 gates in it, and those 12 gates have a name on each one, the 12 tribes. And the Bible also says in Revelation chapter 1 about this beautiful city with these gates with the 12 tribes, that there are 12 foundations and the walls around this city that have the 12 apostles' names on them. The Bible makes a clear linkage to show us what Jesus is doing. Jesus is building one big, happy family. And in Jesus, this family is truly going to reach its full potential that God had promised it. You see, this family that Jesus is in the process of building is actually going to meet the criteria that God had promised to Abraham. This family is going to be much larger than just Abraham's biological descendants. And this family is going to include people who are, to use a Bible term, Gentiles. Gentiles are the people who are not ethnically Jewish. So you've got Jews, 
and everybody else and everybody else and all of, all of that richness fit in the category of Gentiles. And Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29 says this, if you are Christ's, okay, so if you belong to Christ, if you have been born again, if you have received the gift of the Spirit, if you have been saved, all those things are what it means to, be, to belong to Christ. The Bible says in Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Now, one person sums it up well this way. They say it more succinctly than I could. But listen to what they say. They say, through faith in Jesus, Gentiles can also be descendants of Abraham and inherit the blessing of Abraham. On the last day, there will be a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. He's getting this from Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, which says, where John says, I saw a great number, a multitude that's uncountable, of people from every kingdom, tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne. This author goes on to say, only through Jesus Christ will Jacob's offspring become like the dust of the earth. So it's no wonder then that on a few occasions the New Testament would describe the church as a household. It refers to it as the household of faith, the family of faith. And as Christians, how do, what's the, what kind of relationship do we have to God? God is our Father. And what kind of family relationship does the Bible say that you have to Christ? Christ is your brother. And what kind of family relationship do we have with one another? We are brothers and sisters in Christ. The idea of family is all through the New Testament. It's woven into the very fabric of the New Testament. So we look at a family as dysfunctional as Jacob's and say, what in the world could God do with that? But look at what God did. No human failure is able to overcome God's certain plans for his people. So look now at the family of God today. It's a little dysfunctional, isn't it? Church is a little bit of a reality show at times, is it not? There's a fair amount of bickering, fighting. You look at it, we look at our own church, we can be a little dysfunctional. 
this is your first time you're with us today and you were hoping you'd finally found the perfect one, this ain't it. We will let you down. But God's at work. God's family is going to be this diverse group of people from every kingdom, tribe, tongue, and nation. It's going to be people that you agree with and people that you don't. There may be some Lutherans there. I don't know how that hits you. There may be some Assemblies of God people there. There may be some Methodists there. There may be some Presbyterians there. There might be some Anglicans there. On top of that, there may be some people there that don't have the same skin color you have. There may be some people who have a culture very different from yours and cultural values that are very different from yours. And I think one of our responsibilities as Christians is to capture God's vision for the family. Because you and I tend to have a very provincial definition of the family. It is going to be filled to the brim, sand on the seashore, with people who aren't like you. And the sooner you and I get to accepting that and embracing it, the sooner we start to become a church exiting the dysfunction and enter into, entering into the wonder and mystery of what God actually intends. And that's probably hard for some of us here because our, 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 the way we imagine heaven is people who are all just like us. And you say, how in the world... How in the world is God going to take people like that and put them all together so that we're all standing around the throne wearing the same, same uniform, robes of white, holding up the same palm branches and letting go of all the dumb stuff we argue about? How are we going to be that? What's going to make that happen? Because it frankly seems to be getting worse to me. Well, remember this from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. The Bible says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who, were, who once were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In the context of what that's talking about, it's talking about bringing together Jews and Gentiles, Jews and everyone else, and making them one family. And if God can do that with Jews and Gentiles and bring them into one family, then he can do it with us. And let me tell you something, it's going to happen. Because John's revelation of what he saw was not wishful thinking. It's what we are going to be. So let me close this way. I've spoken to those of us who are Christians, tried to paint a picture for us to try to capture a vision for what God wants for the family. But what about those who are here with us this morning who are not Christians? Well, we want you to be a part of God's family. And I've got good news for you if you're standing a little bit far off and thinking, I'm not sure if I can be a part of this because of what I've done and because of the person that I am. Let me assure you, he takes the most dysfunctional people that you can imagine and he welcomes them into his home. And the proof is that we're here. There are no natural-born children in God's family. We are all, as Jesus told Nicodemus, we all must be born again. Or to use another metaphor of the New Testament, we are adopted into his home. Those who are born again are those who realize that they are sinners, that they are separated from God and separated from the promises that God has made because of their sin, But the good news of the gospel is this, Christ Jesus died to save sinners. And Jesus did not die and stay in the grave, but he rose again on the third day and he now stands with his arms wide open ready to offer forgiveness to all those who call upon the name of the Lord. And then he doesn't just offer you forgiveness, he doesn't just offer you a clean slate, he welcomes you into the family. you can be brought into the fellowship of God's forever family this morning. And we'll have folks up here willing to talk with you about it if you need to talk more. But let's pray together. Lord, we are amazed at how you can make so much out of so little. That you can take the dysfunction of Jacob's family and turn it into something that produces the Messiah that saves the world. I thank you for the vision of the future that, that the whole of Scripture casts for us. That we will one day be together as God's one big happy family. And I pray that you would help us to seek in small ways to make our church taste of what will be 
to show the world around us what could be. And if there is someone here this morning who does not know Christ as Savior, I pray that by your sovereign grace, you would bring them into the family of God today. We ask it in our Father's name. Amen.